no idea what that uh, song means to me. Uh, I'm glad I get to stick around for the second service and hear it again. Um, when I was... Uh, when I first felt the call to go into the ministry, I was listening to a song by Keith Green. And uh, the words of that song, uh, Keith said, I make my life a prayer to you. So that's really fitting that you guys chose that today. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn open to John chapter 20. I know some of you are looking at the title of the sermon, Doubting Faith, and wondering where in the world is he going with this? Um, I'm not going to ask you to doubt your faith today. <laughs> I'm not going that direction. <laughs> but uh, the direction I am going to go, I think most of you have probably been there. And I think many of you probably are there right now. And it's the fact that while we do have faith in Christ, in who He is, in our commitment to Him, we still live with doubt every single day. And so, I just want to tell you a little bit, first of all, before we read our text, about some of the doubts that I've dealt with in my life. Um, most of you know that I grew up as a pastor's kid. I accepted Christ when I was five years old. And, you know, there wasn't any really big change in my life. I was five years old. It wasn't like I was out on the corner dealing crack, you know, and then the next moment I was saved in, in church. So one of the things that I struggled with, honestly struggled with for the longest time, my dad came from that kind of background. My dad was saved in 1983 from a life of wild drug abuse, uh, from just the craziest stuff you can imagine, carried a 44 Magnum on his side everywhere he went, you know, kind of guy that, you know, cussed so much the hell's angels would blush, you know. He was that kind of guy. And in 1983, August the 13th, my dad accepted Christ, uh, some people went to share their faith with him. When they walked up to the door, they said they could smell the pot smoke coming out from under the door. And they, they sat on the front porch that night with my dad. My mom was actually inside. They were living together at the time. And um, my mom said that my dad walked out to talk to those people. And when he walked in, he was a different person. You know, I never experienced that. And I don't know what your experience is, but as a five-year-old, I never had this unbelievable changing moment when I accepted Christ. And so for years, I struggled uh, with, you know, why, didn't I, why don't I have this am amazing change? Why is my story kind of... I'm rolling up my sleeves. It's kind of warm in here. Um, why didn't I ever have some kind of amazing changing moment. Where was my Oprah moment, I guess? And I can remember uh, I went to Camp Caraway as an RA. Um, I guess you guys have done RAs here before, before narrators. But as an RA, I went to Camp Caraway. And I can remember that week uh, some of the messages that were taught. And I remember by the end of the week starting to feel like, ooh, man, I know I prayed and accepted Christ, but you know, I don't know how much I really understood. I was probably 11 at this time. It had been, you know, six years since I accepted Christ. And I began to think, you know, maybe I need to do this thing again. You know, maybe the first time wasn't good enough. And I can remember praying at the end of that week and just praying, God, you know, I know I prayed back then, but I'm praying now. I really, really want to be safe. And uh, so I prayed then. And then a couple years later, uh, you know, I began to deal with some doubts and struggles again. 
And, and this is going to sound funny and slightly embarrassing, but I'll tell you anyway. It was, um, I was reading the Left Behind series. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you go through this book and you get into all these characters' lives and, um, you know, you learn about them. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you, you know, the, the book that you're reading it and the guy's on the plane and he gets up and goes to the restroom, comes back and the person next to him is gone, you know. And then he starts looking around the plane and there's like clothes everywhere. You know, people have just vanished. And man, I'm reading it. I'm like 14 and I'm just like, holy cow. I'm just like waiting for my mom and dad to disappear from the front seats of the van and it careens off a cliff, you know. And I'm freaking out. And uh, I just remember saying to myself, I'm not going to finish this book without being sure that I have accepted Christ because I am really wondering if... You know, I just think that there comes times in every single person's life where you, once you've accepted Christ, it's only natural to deal with questions, uh, doubts. And what I want to help you to do today, because I, I know some of you may be struggling with very serious doubts, even more so than a 14-year-old reading Left Behind. Some of you are dealing with tragedy in your life. Some of you are dealing with sickness. Some of you this past year lost people who are very close to you. And it can be very easy for our doubts to reach a point where they really begin to affect our living walk with Christ. In fact, and some of you know, or maybe you've seen someone who has let doubt get to such a point where it's turned into bitterness and it's turned into hatred and it's what controls their life and they're out of control. So let's go ahead and look at John chapter 20. Um, the, the Gospel of John is my favorite book of the Bible. John is such a very personal writer. And uh, the whole point of the book is found in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I want to read that first. That's not our text today, but I do want to read that first. This is at the very close to the very end of the book, within the last chapter. And John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. And this is the clue, church, for understanding the entire book of John. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when we read the book of John, we have to interpret everything in John through that lens. John is writing this to engender faith. John is writing this so that I might believe. And so when you look at all these stories, John begins in the first chapter and he says, in the beginning was the Word. That's the first title that he gives to Jesus, the Word. Very mystical, um, very conceptual. It's not incredibly descriptive, almost ethereal type of title. And so John begins talking about this Word and then this Word becomes flesh and his name is Jesus. And then John goes and he gives these eight different miracles throughout the book. And all of these miracles are leading you to the point of where hopefully you're beginning to see, okay, this is not some ordinary man. This person must be God. And so John uses all of these miracles, and all along the way, John gives these little insights into people who have accepted Christ. In John chapter 4, John gives the story of the woman in Samaria, the Samaritan woman at the well. She believes Christ, and then she goes out into the village, and she tells all of her friends, come and see this person. He's shown me Everything I've ever done, he's got to be the Christ. In John chapter 9, we see the man born blind. And the man born blind is changed by Christ. 
He receives his sight, and then what does he do? He goes and testifies in front of a court, gives an official um, recorded uh, document of what Jesus has done. And then here at the very end of the book, John gives one last story before giving you the purpose, before asking you, before saying, this is written so that you would believe. And I just find it really, really interesting that after talking about people who have shared their faith with entire villages, people who have stood before a court of law and given a testimony, the last person that John includes before asking you to accept Christ is a doubter, is someone who struggles with severe doubt. It's almost as if John is saying, you can do it too. So let's look at Thomas, doubting Thomas today. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus had come. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to him, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and place it and see my hands. Put your hand here and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. As we look through this text today, I want you to notice five, five different truths. Uh, they're going to be on the screen behind me. You can write them down. Five different truths about Thomas's doubt um, and ones that apply to us. Number one, when I follow Christ, I must realize that everyone doubts, and I am no exception. Number one, everyone doubts, and I am no exception. You know, the name Doubting Thomas is not really fair to Thomas. When you go back and look at what had happened in the first uh, couple chapters right before this, you realize that Thomas wasn't the only one that doubted, was he? All of the disciples had doubts. In fact, Jesus told him before he was crucified, you know, I'm going to go away and I'm going to be arrested and all of you are going to run and hide and I'm going to be left alone. And sure enough, after Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples, every one of them, left, ran, hid. Even John the Baptist doubted. John was the great evangelist. John was the last great Old Testament prophet. And even John had doubts. Look at Luke chapter 7 with me. John was the one who came at the very beginning, before any of the twelve were chosen, before the seventy were sent out. John was the one who came shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John is the one who baptized Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Look at Luke 7, verse 18. The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, reported all these things to him about what Jesus was doing. 
And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying... Now listen to this. John, the one who baptized Christ. God the Father spoke out of heaven, confirming Jesus' identity. And John sent two of his disciples to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Shall we look for another? Peter denied Christ. Peter stood on the Mount of Transfiguration. He watched and looked at Christ in all of his glory. Peter got to meet Moses and Elijah there. And it just amazes me that even Peter denied Christ three times. To prove that Thomas was not a coward, when Jesus told his disciples of the crucifixion, Thomas was the one who stood up in John chapter 11 and said, let's go that we may die with him. Thomas wasn't afraid. He wasn't a coward. And yet, all of the twelve disciples had doubts. John the Baptist had doubts. And yet we label Thomas as the doubting one. I just want to encourage you for a moment that when you look through the Bible, when you look at the characters of the Bible, they struggled. If you don't see that, then you're probably not reading close enough. You look in the Psalms and David is crying out, Oh my God! Would that I could just be close to you. Like a deer pants for water, my soul is thirsty for you, God. Because he is in a dry place spiritually. And he has frustrations and struggles with his faith. So, as a word of encouragement, you're no different. I just look at it and I go, man, if the twelve disciples could live for three years, day in and day out with Jesus... Touch him, hold him, talk to him face to face, watch him heal people, raise someone from the dead. And yet they doubted? Okay, man, you know, my doubts, they're warranted, you know, they're warranted. This life can throw me some curveballs and it's okay to doubt. Everyone doubts. I'm no exception to the rule. Many times I just find, though, and for, for whatever reason, in our churches, we're allowed to doubt the faithfulness of our spouse. We're allowed to doubt whether our kids are hanging out with the right people at school. But whatever you doubt, don't doubt your faith. There's a, there's a theological word for that. Stupid. Stupid. Of course you're going to doubt. Of course you're going to doubt. So be okay with it for the moment. We're going to keep going. We're not going to end at doubt. If everyone doubts, and I'm no exception, then number two, my doubts may not be resolved immediately. I want you to notice this from the text. I think John is very, uh, very intentional when he's writing here. Look at verse 26 of our text. John writes, eight days later. John remembered and was probably there, probably watching Thomas for eight days as all of the disciples were talking about their faith and how it had been renewed and how they were experiencing Christ like they had never experienced Him before. Risen from the dead, their faith was assured He really is the Messiah. They watched for eight days as Thomas struggled. And Thomas would not give in, would not believe. 
my doubts may not be resolved immediately. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if every time we ever had a doubt, you know, Jesus would just pop in, poof, and say, you know, here I am. It's okay. It's all right. But, you know, sometimes God has other plans for your life, and he certainly did for Thomas. All the other disciples were lucky. They got to sit around and see Christ, hold him, speak to him. Thomas didn't get that. I'm sure Thomas probably wondered to himself, why me? Why wasn't I there? Why can't Christ come now? He came to them. Why can't he show himself to me? Why am I alone in all of this? God, it would be so simple for you to remedy this. If you would just show up right now in this moment of doubt and grief, I could just be done with this. Obviously, you're not real because you're not here. This is the hardest point in the sermon. This is the hardest point in life when you get to this point. This is the point of indefiniteness. When Thomas doubted, Christ didn't rush to his aid the moment of doubt. He let Thomas sit on it for a while. And maybe we won't ever know the reason. Maybe it's just so we can read about it and go, hey, there was a reason for it. Thomas can now say to us, it's worth it. Just hold on a little bit longer. Just wait for a few more moments. I know some of you are at this point right now. At the point when faith begins to break. I know Rich Mullins once said, I I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here to where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. It's okay to be at that point in your life. It's perfectly fine. Just don't let it consume you. Don't let it turn to bitterness. We always like to quote the verse, weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Sometimes it can be a really long night. A really long night. This past week, my dad was called to the hospital. And a young girl in her 20s had an asthma attack. The paramedics didn't get there in time. And uh, by the time they got on the scene, uh, she was had lost all brain function, all brain activity. And I, I just, I've been praying for that family all week because they're going through what this sermon is all about. They're in a long, long night. But it's not the end. It's not the end. Your doubts may not be resolved immediately. Know that. I'll say it. Once again, because it's crucial that you understand it, your doubts may not be resolved immediately. But once again, that's not the end. I want you to look at verses 26 and 27 because here's the great part. Here's the turning point. It's that Jesus is greater than my doubts. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, the thing that I find so awesome about this text is that when Thomas was doubting, when he was saying, I will never believe. In the original language, Thomas uses a double negative. And in English, that means a positive. But in Greek, in the, orig- in the original, when you use a double negative, that's like an emphatic no. When Thomas said, I will never believe, it's like he's saying, never, ever. Not in this life or the next will I ever believe unless I see and touch him. And it just amazes me that as blatantly honest and condemning as Thomas is, Christ doesn't write him off. It just blows my mind that Thomas is just laying it all out there on the line and he's saying, you know what? I saw what happened to him on the cross. There's no way anyone could survive that and I'm just not going to believe it. And in that moment of extreme doubt, Jesus didn't look at him and say, well, you're out. That's it. You had one chance to believe. This was your chance of faith, and you failed. Now you're asking me for proof? Well, you're gone. No, Christ comes to him and helps his unbelief. And that's the third point of the sermon. Jesus is greater than my doubts. He didn't cast Thomas off. He ministered to him. He loved him. Like I said, I'm I'm sure that Thomas was saying to himself, you know, why, God, why? Why did everyone else get to see and why did I not? Jesus didn't cast Thomas off. He ministered to Thomas. That's the same with you. God's a big boy. I've said that to a couple of people at times when they're, they're dealing with some some heartache. He, he is. God's a big boy. When you read through the Bible, you realize that there are a lot of characters in the Bible that really um, were frustrated with God and almost had it out with God. Moses does this a couple times in the Old Testament. Moses speaks to God very plainly and, and says, God, you said you were going to do this. You better do it. There are moments of frustration that Moses has where he's just honest. and God is an honest God and he can accept and He can handle your honesty. As long as you're at least honest enough to allow Him to prove Himself real. To prove Himself right. God is a rewarder, the Bible says, of those who diligently seek Him. And it's okay to have questions. And it's okay to want answers. You might not remember. You might not get them when you want them. But Jesus is greater than your doubts. He's bigger than what you're dealing with. I know that it might not make any sense to you right now if you're going through a tough time. I know that might sound crazy, but it's true. And there are a lot of people here that can testify to it. All of the people around Thomas could have testified to it, although he couldn't see it, although he couldn't rationalize it. It didn't mean it was irrational. Jesus is greater than my doubts. Four, I want you to see, number four, that confession is the greatest weapon I have against doubt. Confession is the greatest weapon 
that I have against doubt. Look at verse 28. After all of this, out of, after all the doubt, after all the frustration, after all the struggles, Christ finally does reveal Himself. And Thomas is now ready. Look at what he says. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. When you're struggling with doubt, it is important to remember two things. Number one, Remember what Christ has done for you in the past. Remember what has happened in the past. Because there have been times of great victory in your life as well. There have been times when Christ has come through for you. There have been times when Jesus has rescued you. And so to forget all of those when the trial comes, it's not exactly fair to Him, is it? It's important, number one, to remember what Christ has done in your life. And number two, it's important to look at what Christ is doing in others' lives. At least when Jesus left this earth, he was honest with us. Also in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. At least he was honest with us. At least he didn't paint a rosy picture and say, you know what, life is going to be great. No, no. Life for him in many ways, ended in a, in a pretty stinky way. You know, that whole cross bit wasn't exactly going out with a bang. And so, remember what Christ has done in your life. Remember also what Christ has done in others' lives. People always talk about they, they want to feel close to God. Rich Mullins also... Uh, I'll quote Rich a lot because he's one of my favorite singer-songwriters. Rich once said that, I I hear people talking about they want to feel close to God. I want to feel close to Him. And he said, I just tell people, they come to me and they ask me, how do I feel close to God? And he said, you know, I don't know how to feel close to God. He said, in fact, most of the people that I've met who were really godly people had times in their lives where they didn't feel too close to God. And in fact, I'm not sure that feeling close to God is what we need to be concerned with. Instead of feeling close to God, maybe we need to be concerned with being obedient to God. He said, because I know this. Now listen to it. Catch this. He said, I may be obedient to God all of my life and never have this feeling of closeness. But I know this. If we're disobedient, We never have a chance. I may be obedient for my entire life and never have this emotional high, this emotional feeling of being close to God, but I do know this. If we're disobedient to Him, we never have a chance of feeling that way. So what I'm going to ask you to do is even in moments of doubt, confess faith to Christ. Confess that He is who He says He is. As crazy as it might seem at the moment, it is your greatest weapon against doubt is to continually confess, my Lord and my God. That's the point that John wants to bring you to. Remember I said the first name that he gave Christ, the Word? Very mystical, almost ethereal. This is the last name that John gives to Christ 
in the words of Thomas, before he gives you the whole purpose of his book, before John invites you into relationship with Christ, is that John wants you to move in a point from a point in your life where you know Christ as, as just the Word, and that you don't really have a deep relationship with Him, to a place where you can say, my Lord and my God, and have a personal, deep relationship with Him. Winfrey Cordewan talks about it this way. He talks about three different faiths in the Christian life. The first is saving faith. Saving faith is over here. It's when you uh, cry out to God in a moment of desperation. God, I don't know much about you. All I know is I need you. I'm going down. And that's saving faith. It doesn't know a lot about Christ. It doesn't have a lot of ability to act on itself. It's just crying out for rescue. And so after you experience saving faith in your life, Cordoan says that then you should begin to experience growing faith. Growing faith is when you begin to take faith seriously and you don't just say that I believe in Christ. You begin to act out and do the things that He has called you to do. You begin to be generous towards other people because Christ has been generous towards you. You begin to be honest towards people because Christ has been honest with you. You begin to love your neighbors because Christ has loved you. And that's growing faith. And then you just begin to work in that and do the commands of Christ. And it grows in you. And finally, when you live in that growing faith and you do the things that Christ has called you to do, then you can get to a point of what quarter one calls knowing faith. And this is a point at which once you have asked for rescue and help, and then you have acted on what Christ has given you. And you have shown trust in Him. This is a point where you get to when you begin to know deep in your spirit something that is inexplainable, a knowledge of the real presence of Jesus Christ in your life. The problem is most of the time we want to cry out in saving faith and then expect an incredible feeling of closeness and and relationship when in fact we have not been doing the things that God has called us to do. We want a feeling of closeness. But describe feeling close to God to me. Describe it. I guarantee that if you begin to think in your mind what closeness to God feels like, you could also describe it as having the same effects as eating a bar of chocolate. Or drinking a cup of coffee. or You know, this warmness, this this great emotional high. Feeling is really hard to define. But obedience is not. So I want you to begin to live your life on something that is clearly defined. And that's obedience. It's hard to define feeling, but define obedience for me to Christ. Go ahead. What's obedience to Christ? Doing what he says. So what are some of the things that he says? Love. Trust. Humble yourself. What was that? Go. Go. See, now all of a sudden we've stepped into a point where we can now define what the goals should be in our Christian walk. Where we're no longer just looking for something that is ethereal and inexplainable. Now we have set out patterns and habits for our life. Time and prayer every day. Reading of the Word of God. 
loving others when they are unlovable. These are attainable. Even in the midst of doubt, these are attainable. But when you're in the midst of doubt and you're asking for feeling, it's a little bit harder to come by. So confession and obedience are the greatest weapons you have against doubt. Finally, verse 29. Look at what Jesus says. After Thomas gives this great exclamation point to the Gospel of John, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is you. That's you. You are the ones who have not seen and yet have believed. You, even in your doubt today, and that's the final point, I am blessed even when I doubt. I'm blessed even when I doubt. Dr. Nelson, one of the professors at my school, talked about when he was um, first teaching his kids how to swim. He would get down into the pool, into the water, and put them on the edge, and then ask them to jump to him, to jump to his arms. And he said, you know, the first couple times that they got up to the edge, they would walk up to it and look out and just be so afraid to jump because they knew how deep the water was. And he said, you know, the first couple times they would not jump. I wouldn't force them to do it. I wouldn't force them to come to me. I was simply asking them to trust. But they wouldn't. Do you think that because they didn't trust me, I hated them for that? Do you think that because they wouldn't jump to me, I said, you know what, you're no child of mine now because you won't trust me. I said, no. It's a, it was an opportunity, opportunity for me to come in as the father, as the friend and love them. Be close to them. And teach them that they can trust. And it would take time. And it would be difficult. But they could trust that I would catch them. You are blessed even when you doubt. You know, history tells us that Thomas went on to be a missionary. He packed up his things after this encounter with Christ and went all the way to India. There in India, he preached his heart out and died as a martyr of the faith. What could cause such a heart for Christ It wasn't a mountaintop experience, I can assure you of that. For Thomas, the only way to get to his life's mission was through extreme doubt. The path that led to the summit also took a long journey through the darkest recesses of the valley. But when Thomas was at his worst, Jesus was at his best. And I want you to remember today, When you are at your wit's end, when you feel like you are losing your mind because your faith just doesn't make sense, remember this. The lowest ebb, E-B-B, the lowest ebb is the turn of the tide. The lowest you can get 
is the point at which you begin to return. Let's pray.